0: Hey, um, because we had some technical difficulties on Sunday and we couldn't um, record the sermon video, we had to record it afterwards, um, just the audio. So this recording is not the one from Sunday, but it's the one that we had to record during the week. Exodus chapter 21 through 3. Um, Then God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. On May 2nd, 2009, I married my beautiful wife, Christina, which outside of deciding to follow Jesus and decide to follow this pastoral calling is still the greatest decision and therefore the greatest blessing of my life. Ten years plus of glorious marriage and each year better than the previous. But I think it's fair to say that it started off atypically, or not as most would expect. Because within the first few days of marriage, yeah, I think literally within the first week, I looked at Christina and said with all of my heart these words to her. I said, honey, I love God infinitely more than I love you. And you should be thankful that that's the case. And you then need to love God infinitely more than you love me. Because that's the only way this is going to work. Now, I'm not sure where it all came from, but... I knew with hundred percent certainty that this had to be the case if our marriage was going to be all that it was and all that we were hoping it to be. And I think without knowing it, I was echoing the first commandment, the words that have and will anchor my life to its core. Cause you can take everything else away from my life, but this you cannot have. I will surrender anything and everything to anyone if need be, but this I will, and I cannot. cause this is not only the most critical of the 10 commandments. For me, it is the most critical commandment that God has ever given, period. Within this commandment is the key to living the life of freedom, the life that God has designed and desires for you and for me. Basically, if you keep this, then you will naturally keep the rest. If you keep this, then you will keep what we've been calling the best life. Keep the fact that you shall have no other gods before me. Now, I fully admit... This commandment and what I've been saying so far is really highly controversial in the world that we live in today. Because we live in a world in which many people think like marriage is too serious and too binding. Like why do that? We could just cohabitate. And we're in a world where we fight against any restrictive boundary of any kind of thing. We say all the time, can't nobody tell me how to live my life? That's the world we live in. And all of it, if we're just being honest, it makes God sound like a jealous, clingy, needy, overbearing person who says, No, you can't love anyone but me. You can't have anyone but me. Which again then means forget freedom. This is oppressive slavery language. It's not, it's everything opposite of the things that we've been saying. So then it begs the question how do we respond? How does this protect and enhance our life of freedom, as we've been saying throughout this series? This is the question of the day and the question that I hopefully will answer for you. Now, let's give a little background, a few facts about the first commandment, before we kind of jump into everything. This commandment and the next one both deal with the same dimension of God's character, his jealousy, because they will ask a very fundamental question of our lives. For whom will I live? Whom will I serve? Whom will I worship? Let me say that again. For whom will I live, whom will I serve, and whom will I worship? And I'm guessing many people in today's world will say, uh, no one. Like, I live for me. I don't live for, serve, nor worship nobody. I live for me. It's the great empowering freedom anthem of our generation, it seems. But no matter who you are, let's not be mistaken. If you are a human being, at least, you are indeed living for someone, serving someone, and worshiping someone, or perhaps something. And if you don't believe me, consider this. In these two first commandments, God tells us something at the core of who we are, that we are worshiping creatures. Just as birds fly, fish swim, and cats meow, and dogs bark, human beings worship. We were created to adore and trust something or someone. It's simply in our design. It's why almost every single boy in America at one point or another, or you wanted to, wore a picture of a superhero on your butt. On your underwear. It's why my kids do it. Or it's why every girl of a certain generation wanted to be Anna or Elsa. It is just the facts. Everyone has a God that he or she trusts. Maybe is isn't our God Yahweh, but everyone lives for some God or something or someone of ultimate concern. And I think for many of us, it's me, myself, and I. But everyone, it's there. We cannot escape this for just being honest. Every act throughout the day is an act of worship of someone or something. I mean, think about that for a second. Let me say it again. Every act throughout the day is an act of worship of someone or something. Like, let that sink in. And so because God knows this, because he created us this way, then out of his mercy and grace, he speaks this commandment to keep us from utterly ruining our lives. You shall have no other gods before me. Now ask yourself, and seriously ask yourself, Don't just. this is not a rhetorical hypothetical thing, actually ask yourself and spend a minute or two, what are some of the things or people you worship? Because the focus of this commandment isn't to teach us that there's only one God. There are many other scriptures who do that better, or that do that better, excuse me. But the focus is, are you loyal to the one true God? Is your allegiance to the one true God? See, I think most Christians think that the key question that everyone needs to answer is, does God exist to understand if someone's a Christian or not? But I don't think that's it. To me, the question is more—that's more that's more important is, what God am I worshiping? Because again, we're all worshiping something or someone. So knowing this, then to get at kind of the main question of the day as I proposed earlier, I have these four questions today, and they'll be on your screen. One, why does God give this commandment? Two, what happens when we do not obey it? And three, how then we obey it? How then do we obey it? Excuse me. And then four, a bonus question, which I will review later. I don't know why I made that a bonus question. It just felt good to me. So I just did it that way. But anyways, let's get into the questions. So number one, why does God give this commandment? This is critical. Because like most of the other rules in your life, if you know why and agree that it's a good rule, you are way more likely to obey than if you don't know why and don't agree with the rule. And as I alluded to earlier, on the surface, it doesn't look all that good because it begs these kind of questions of our God. Does God give it because God is lonely and needs more of our attention? Is it because God is insecure? Is it because God is an egotistical narcissist who needs like constant praise to feel good about himself, especially from us? And to all of this, all Christians should say and will say, hopefully, of course not. But then it still begs the question, why? And the answer is this. It'll be on your screen because God is telling us something about ourselves that we would have never figured out on our own, that we were made in such a way that only the living God can ever satisfy the longings of our hearts. Which is to then say, we weren't only made by God, but we were made for God. God is saying, you and I, we were so greatly and wonderfully, fearfully made, it says in scripture, that nothing but God would ever be good enough. Only the infinite, all-knowing, all-powerful, ever-present, wise, just, gracious, merciful, and eternal God can fill us and fulfill us. I mean, have you heard of anything more dignifying to you as a human being than that? Or my professor puts it this way. He says this, Even if Jesus did immediately remove all pain, all sorrow, all sickness, Even if He did give us all that we ask for, we are not fully alive until we are His, until we belong to Him. We were made by Him and for Him. And we are not at all who we were meant to be until we are wholly His. He Himself is our wholeness. He Himself is our freedom. He Himself is our joy, our peace, our light, and our life. This is exactly the reason why I said to my wife what I said at the beginning of our marriage. This is also the reason why that first-time parents, almost all of them, believe and fully buy into this idea that they need to feed their kids all organic everything, buy them the nicest of everything. We're talking $1,000 stroller, $1,000 crib, whatever the case might be, just like everything at the tip-top quality. Now, once you have more than one kid, you start to stop caring and you realize that's not really not all that is cracked up to be. But when you have your first, everyone thinks that this is the case and this is the way it's supposed to be. And the reason is simple is because I will only give the best for my baby because it's my baby. And my baby will always and only have the best. Other things aren't good enough. It's just simply not good enough. Which means then that what God is saying is only God is good enough for you and for me. Why? Because we are his. This is why we say, and the scriptures say, that God is a jealous God. And not in the Korean drama, like possessive, insecure, easily threatened, and therefore violent kind of a way, but in the best way. A jealousy that results in a zeal to protect something that is supremely precious. Which means that you are supremely precious to God. Has anyone ever told you that? How does it feel when someone tells you that you are supremely precious and they would do anything and everything to protect you? Only God can satisfy. All others will fall short because they simply cannot satisfy us. Now, for any of, those, any, any of you who've ever had a one-on-one conversation lasting longer than a couple minutes or so, you know that what I will ask you is this inevitable question, the dreaded word, Why? I ask, why do you do this? Why did you do that? What was the reason for this? What was the hope? What was the goal? What was the motivation? So on and so forth. Why do you do what you do? And this is kind of the reason at the bottom of everything, it seems to me. And the reason why I ask this question is because that's kind of very telling for everything in life, it seems. Right? For instance, like ladies, particularly, I mean guys too, but particularly ladies will go for it this time. Why do you wear what you wear? I mean, be honest, right? Don't fake the funk. Be honest. Is it to impress? Is it to get attention that you crave? Or is it simply because you are purely expressing yourself through what you wear? Now, in all full disclosure, and also in fairness, people ask me the same. People ask, like, why do you wear your multicolored different type of pants and your bow tie and do the hair and the the beard and that whole bit? Like, Why do you do that? Right? And again, it's because I love what I wear and that's it. And the reason why I know that is the same question that I would ask many of you who say that you wear what you wear because it's simple self-expression. Now ask yourself this. Would you wear what you wear even if everyone in the world thought it was ugly, ridiculous, out of style, and stupid? Because if your answer to that is yes, then yeah, you are truly just expressing your own self without the care for anyone else. But if you cannot say yes to that question, then it might be something other than. Which is why I don't really care what you think about what I wear. I will wear what I like. Period. End of story. Or even things like beauty of any kind, guys and girls, right? Why do you do what you do, right? If you're a people pleaser like me, then maybe you do what you do simply because you want people to like you. Or if you're kind of the opposite and you don't like it when people hate you, then you will do everything to make sure that people don't hate you, right? Then what you end up realizing is that you're not doing things simply because you believe in it, but you're doing them for others, which means that you're not really expressing yourself. It's you're, All you're trying to do is really have someone satisfy that need. right? All of this, everything, points to this desire that we have to be satisfied. That we're searching everywhere and anywhere only to find that nothing ever actually satisfies us. Only God, the absolute best, is good enough for you and for me. All other things, no matter how good, simply isn't good enough. Simply isn't holy enough Simply isn't perfect enough Simply is not Jesus The only way to live the best life A life of freedom As we were all intended to do so Is to make God our one and our only Then question number two What happens then when we disobey? Simply we lose Terence Fratham says this To obey these commandments is to be what one was created to be if you break this one, then you'll find that you break the rest. A couple of examples. Really easy, but straightforward, but so good. The sixth, because nothing can actually fulfill you, then you will use violence to get what you need. That's why you murder. Or the seventh one, because you're not satisfied and your spouse can't fully satisfy you, no matter how good he or she is, you will then act upon your lust and go get someone else. Or the eighth one, you take what isn't yours. Why? Because you aren't satisfied with that which you already have. But it gets worse. Then what you end up doing in the end is that you end up living for lesser gods, false gods, who in the end are all non-gods. But it gets worse even. Because then what ends up happening is that you end up spending your entire lives trying to get from the false god what they simply cannot offer to you. I mean, think about it. Everything. Academics, career, your riches, status, power. None of these things is ever actually good enough to give you what you want. I mean, test it. Ask people. They don't ever get you. You could, you could be the top in your class. Is that, does it really matter in the end? Not really. You could have the best job, but are you actually satisfied? You could have all the money in the world, but are you actually satisfied? You could have the power, the status, all of it. I mean, look at the world. Look at the people. Look at the celebrities. Look at people who have these things, and you'll see they're not actually satisfied. But it gets even worse from there, I know. See, when you try to then fulfill and satisfy yourself with things that aren't God, then these two things also happen. One, you end up disappointed in the something or the someone, and worse, and this is terrible, abjectly terrible, you end up draining and destroying that something or someone. Every student in here knows what this is like. Most of us are sons and daughters of immigrant parents who had many dreams, and they put those dreams all upon your shoulders, and you have to fulfill them. How many of you in here would think and would say that you've actually fulfilled the complete dream dream of your parents. And what does this do to you? Doesn't it suck the life right out of you? It takes everything from you doing so. Even those of you who are grown children, as, as adults, trying to please your parents through that throughout your entire lives, does it ever actually fully satisfy? You can't. And it just sucks the life right out of you. Spouses, you know this to be true, but the other, you try to make them your God and you will absolutely drain them and suck the living life out of them. You will absolutely ruin them and destroy them. Because they cannot, no one, and I need to repeat this, absolutely no one other than the one true God can bear the weight of being someone's God. They're not good enough. And then the worst of all, yeah, it gets worse. In the end, you become addicted to all of these false gods that are beneath what you and I were created to be. Earlier we quoted Terrence friedheim and I'll quote him again, but I'll add this little section to kind of make it hopefully a little bit more clear to you. He says to obey these commandments is to be what one was created to be. And then I add to disobey is to fall slave to that, which is beneath what you and I were created to be. God must be for our sake, for others, our one and only, because only He can bear the weight. Then the third question: Then, how then do we obey the commandment? First, we have to re- we have to repent, because we have disobeyed. But then, after you do that, then there's a few steps that I think you have to take, and I want you to really take these seriously. After you repent, then the next thing you must do is admit and own the fact that you and I that we do not obey. Admit your tendency towards idolatry And the more I reflect, I feel like this is something that we're just really bad at Here in the American church particularly We don't admit our idols We don't admit that we are idolatrous in so many different ways We think it's not that bad Admit that we take our non-gods Our spouses, our children, our jobs, our possessions, our technology Our money, our grades, our status, all of it Our beauty, everything And we put them in the place that only God can occupy Again, we have this tension of the gospel, right? That we are both, at the same time, more wretched than we ever will ever believe, but also more loved and adored and accepted than we ever dare hope. Then after that, then what you must do is then ask yourself, on a regular basis, tough questions like these that I will tell you. And by the way, we do this constantly in our house. Ask my wife. Nothing ever goes by without tough questions like this. And the reason why this is, and I tell my wife all the time, and my kids, right, that I, it's because I know how rampant and dangerous sin is. I've said this to you before. I create, literally create situations, right, for my kids to fail. Why? It's to teach them that they're not absolutely great. I know as a pastor that that's sometimes how we all grew up. For those of us who are, who are pastors' kids in here, you know that. You have to be perfect. If you were at retreat, Christina Rue talked about it. Like, we just know that that's what it is. But This is kind of something we have to do. Ask yourself these tough questions. Ask yourself questions like this. What is it that gives me a sense of security and identity? What is it? Is it being the best? Is it being the smartest? Is it being the most beautiful? Is it being the most popular? What is it? Or ask yourself questions like this. What do I fear? What do I legitimately fear? Because your fears will tell you a lot about what you do and how you do it. Like, do you fear being poor? Do you fear being a failure do you fear being rejected do you fear death and dying another tough question that you can ask yourself what do i love more than anything else again this thing this activity this person it might be really good actually most likely it is for why would you and i love something that isn't good and god actually might also want you to have it most likely if it's good for you he does want you to have it but Do not be mistaken. It must not and cannot, for your sake, for my sake, for its sake, stand in the place where only God and God alone deserves and desires to stand. Ask yourself questions like this What gives meaning to my life? Is it success? Is it status? Is it prosperity and wealth? We've mentioned it again and again and again. What gives you meaning? What gives you a sense that you're doing something with your life? Or questions like even in salvation, what saves or who saves? Is it the church? Is it a pastor? Or is it Jesus? Recognize that these non-gods have that you have put in place of God and indeed ask God for help. Then next and lastly, Then as you ask yourself these questions, and as God reveals to to you the answers to these questions, knowing your tendency for idolatry, then you must fight them. You must crucify them. Everyone forgets, but must be reminded that Jesus says, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. I hope you know this isn't some sort of euphemism, some sort of nice thing that he says. When he says that, when he says crucify the flesh, crucify these things, he literally is talking about what happened to him. It means you must take your idolatry and your sins. You must take that stupid thing, nail it to the cross and watch it bleed out and die because that's how dangerous it is. This isn't some nice thing, some symbolic gesture. It's an actual thing that you must do all the time. You admit, we admit our idolatry. Then we ask ourselves hard questions all the time. And then knowing what we know, we deny our idolatrous ways and we crucify them, murder them on the cross because there's so much at stake. Your well-being, the well-being of the idols that you've made idols, all of it, their life is at stake. Their slavery and their freedom is at stake. So this is what we ought to do. The next, and the bonus question. What happens when we simply refuse? God can, and he will, warn us that we are on the road to idolatry. Happens all the time. And also, God can and will woo us back. And again and again, he does this over and over and over. But what happens, and what is God supposed to do when we don't respond to his warning or his wooing? When, as we've said before when we're just listening and not actually hearing? One thing that God can and will do is simply remove the idol. I want to share with you an example from a book um, called A Severe Mercy, and uh, the cover of the book will be on the screen here as you see it. Um, And I'm just going to read you an excerpt from this that kind of gives you an idea of what's going on, and then we'll kind of dive into it. But here's the excerpt from the book. It talks about uh, a young couple named Sheldon and, and Jean who went by the name of Van and Davy. But let me just read this for you and then we'll kind of jump into it. Sheldon, who went by the nickname Van and his wife Jean, whom he called Davy, were madly in love. Theirs was an exquisitely romantic, close, tender, and exclusive love. They lived totally and exclusively for each other. Nothing else in life mattered. Nothing. So exclusive was their love that they decided not to have children, for children would divert them from each other. Their love was their God. Then, one day they moved to England and met C.S. Lewis and some other friends, and through it came to know God, and they threw themselves into Jesus, but not to the same degree. Davy threw herself in all the way. She gave her all for Jesus. Van, however, threw himself in only part way. He held back not for intellectual reasons but because he did not want the god of his and Davy's love relationship changed in any way so before long the tensions began to build between the two lovers Davy's all out love for Jesus threatened van why because Davy oh sorry excuse me because van was no longer number 1 in Davy's life the incarnate god was now number 1 so van grew resentful of Davy the resentment caused him to back off on his relationship with god Jesus was threatening his idol which is his and Davy's love relationship And note here how well and good the idol was. But as good as it was, it stood between him and the living God. That's why God says, you shall have no other gods before me. And then during that time attention, Davy became very ill. In the hospital, she surrendered even further to Jesus. And within months, she died. Now that's the excerpt, but here's kind of how the story ends. So obviously, as Van is dealing with the pain, right, and reflecting upon all this, he then reached out to C.S. Lewis because, you know, they were friends. And wouldn't we all love to have someone like C.S. Lewis in our corner when things like this are happening? But anyways, he had C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis is the one, uh, is a, is one that had helped him to come to Christ anyway. So he was kind of, uh, you know, reflecting and riding back and forth with C.S. Lewis. And through it, they realized that God had moved the idol out of the center. And then through the reflection, this one big question came up to both of them. And it was this. What would have happened in the long run if Davy had gotten well and was healed? So then after they thought and they thought about it, they realized, you know what? There's only three possibilities that could have ever worked out. And here's the first one. The first one is that Van becomes as wholly sold out for God as Davy. But they knew and they realized that this probably wouldn't have happened because even as he watched his wife so wholly committed, none of this happened, right? Even as he watched her die, none of this happened, right? And just watching someone be so wholly committed wouldn't ever have changed anything. It's why none of us can, you know, just become as wholly committed to God just by watching. Parents, let me just tell you right now that your children will not become so wholly committed to God simply because you are wholly committed to God. It's a decision that they will have to make. Right? So the fact that he was gonna become sold out for uh, sold out to God as, as Davy was not gonna happen. Then they realize second option. Van attempts to sabotage Davy's commitment to God. But not admitting to her or himself that he was doing so. But again, probably wouldn't have worked. Why? Because Davy was far too in love with God already. I mean, even cancer didn't change her love for God. And I mean, let's be real what beats cancer? Then the third possibility, and the most realistic and the only likely one, is that Van would come to hate God, Davy, or both. Because he wasn't as committed and he couldn't make her less committed, so it's the only result that remains. He would hate God first for taking away his love and then come to hate Davy because she loved God so much and didn't love him in the same way. So then they concluded, if my reasoning, my judgment is correct, then her death in the dearness of our love had these results. It brought me as nothing else could to know and end my jealousy of God. And it saved her faith from assault. And if death did in truth have these results, it was precisely a severe mercy. And I know something about this because this is exactly the same thing that happened to me when I actually first came to Houston. If you know the story a little bit, um, because of immigration stuff, actually our family got separated for 15 months and I was here alone for the most of it. And, um, Looking back, I knew exactly what this was all about. Because coming to Houston, my family was my idol. If you know stuff about my story and the way that I grew up, I knew and everyone would have told me that I would have not had a good family because I grew up in a crappy one. right? Again, if you know me a little bit, you know that my life goal was to make sure that I wasn't going to be my dad. And I wasn't going to become just like him and repeat the same mistakes he made. So one of the things what happened when I got married and started having a family, right, was that I was gonna make sure that my family wasn't gonna fall into the same kind of crap that my dad had made it fall into. And this is not even considering all the PK stuff, right? Like that PKs and their families are terrible. That um, pastors' kids and all that stuff, excuse me, are like really bad. It's not even even accounting for all that. But I just knew that I had to have a good family, that I could raise a good family, that I wasn't like my dad. And so during the 15 months of separation, the thing that I had to hold on to was that I love God more than anything else. And again, I've, I've said this story many times, but if you haven't heard it, it just kind of went like this. I remember in the middle of it, kind of at the defining moment when I was thinking about actually leaving this church, leaving Houston and going back to Vancouver and saying, you know what, God, this isn't worth it. And I remember I was in my office and I was like punching the ground. Like I almost broke my hand. I was punching it so hard. I had the loud, the music was blaring and I was crying and I was praying. And I remember in that place thinking like, God, I'm done. I can't do this. I'm going to leave and all these things. And I remember in that moment, God spoke to me and he said, is what you just preached to your students lies or do you actually mean it? And right in that moment, I remembered what I had preached that Sunday before. This was like a Wednesday night in my office. And I remember I had told everyone from the pulpit, I preached this, and I said, God has to be your one and only. No matter if everything else is gone, you have to hold on to God because he's the only one good enough because indeed he's the best and you can't love anything else more than him. And in that moment, it was as if God was saying to me, and he said it, do you actually believe or is that just fake? Is it all just show? And so I said, no, God, it's real. I hold on to you, which is why, again, I said, everything I will surrender, but this I can and will not. Now, we must be careful before we move on to note that this story is not teaching that God is somehow super jealous of super close marriages. He's going to ruin all of them or that every tragedy or death of a loved one or all losses God's doing. That's not what this is teaching. That's not how far we need to take it. But here is what indeed the story is illustrating. This story illustrates, for me, that Yahweh is the passionate lover of our souls. Yahweh will do whatever it takes to keep us from ruining our lives by serving other gods, no matter how good those gods might be. Which also that includes, as we learned in the prodigal son parable, that sometimes he's going to let us get our way. Allowing us to have our way, because sometimes it's just what we need to learn to somehow see how deep and wretched our sin is and needs something that God will do. To help us to not ruin our lives even further. Now, I think there's some of us in here who would probably say, you know what? This mercy was just way too crazy and too severe. But I hope you know that there's something even more severe than what God did in this story and what God did in my life and others like it. The most severe thing is when God no longer cares that we go after other gods. When God leaves us all alone with our other gods. When God says, you know what? He, she, not worth it. Because he or she isn't listening. I'm done. I'm through with him or her. All things in life, no matter how good they are, are only good as long as they are not the best. I love this quote and I'll use it and I'll remember it forever. It's from Min Chung, Pastor Minchung in, in Chicago. and He says this, good things are good, but sometimes good is the enemy of best. God's not telling us that we must love him with everything, and that he must be the only God because he's needy or like insecure or any of those things. No, no, no. He's telling us this because he knows and we need to know that only he is good enough because he is best. Nothing else is as good as it needs to be. Nothing else, no matter how good it is, is good enough for you and for me because it is simply not the best And only when we make sure to keep what is best where it needs to be does everything else then actually become good as it was designed the way they were intended to be. For then they actually have their place. This is why then this commandment, as we saw last week, and God's absolute zeal, this jealous zeal to protect that which is supremely precious to Him will then become a promise that one day, Indeed, you will have no other gods before me. Now I'm going to give you a chance to kind of respond and um, really kind of take some of the things that we said seriously because I think we need to do this. This is one of those sermons, indeed, if you're hearing it, that you cannot just sit back and not ask yourself these so tough questions. You cannot just sit here and pretend that this doesn't matter to you because indeed it does. What are you worshiping? What has taken the place that only God can occupy? Who is your God that isn't the one true God? Because no matter what it is, if it isn't God, then it'll lead to a life of ruin. It won't be good enough, and you won't be satisfied. And you'll keep searching over and over and over for the thing that satisfies. We all have a God shaped hole in our hearts. A hole that only God can satisfy. So what is it? So you take time to actually reflect and think about what this might be. To actually deal with the idolatry in our hearts. And then come to grips. And then in doing so, fight and crucify it. And then asking God to fill us with himself. That which is only good enough. So take time to respond. And then join us as we sing in response.